Hi, everybody, and welcome to another special bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers of 80s All Over. Uh, Scott Weinberg is uh, on the road today gathering material for a future bonus episode. Uh, and so I am in L.A., and I am joined today by the director of the upcoming film Mayhem. Uh, he also directed Wrong Turn 2, and uh, he is a longtime friend. So it is a very enjoyable way to start this this new format. Uh, this is Joe Lynch. How you doing, Joe? Hey, how's it going? I'm oh, sorry. That was the worst Weinberg I could possibly <laughs> have done. Hey, everybody. No, that's that's just terrible. Uh, I, I loved how you were like, he's director of such films as Wrong Turn 2 and <laughs> other other quality quality product I, as well. I, I, real, I realized, well, I don't actually consider you the director of Knights of Badassdom after what happened to it. Funny, neither, neither do I. <laughs> neither do yeah, I, but that's yeah. funny. Your movie, I almost brought it up, but then it's, yeah, it's one of those things where I know that's not your film anymore, so... But really, is um, it is it any of our films after the movie's done? That's that's the thing I keep putting in my head when we're like when the movie's finished and then the reviews start coming out and the mo- and people start reacting to them. It's like I, I have no control over that anymore. So whether whatever baggage someone comes into with a movie, uh, that's on them. Then then it is on me. You know, it's like I can just do the best job that I can and and very much like many of the movies that we'll talk about today. It's it's like there are movies that. I'm sure the critics, you know, were, might not have been kind to or fans might not have been kind to and just let them, you know, dust off into the breeze. But there are movies that, like, I connected to very much how the, I have a lot of people who come up to me now and say, I love Knights of Badassdom. And the old me would have been like, Do you know, like, I wish I could tell you everything that when that happened because it, it was a terrible yeah. situation. But I can't. And people are watching these movies completely with no context to that and enjoying them or not enjoying them on their own accord. I mean, that's the power of cinema. That's a very healthy approach, my friend. It's a hell, it's a healthy way, but not like born out of experience at this point, because I I mean, I I think I told you this story before, like I was going through this whole fracas with Knights of Badassdom and because we have the, the movie crypt, uh, our podcast with, uh, with Adam green, we ended up having Don Coscarelli on the show. And it's Don Coscarelli. So, of course, we're talking about the Phantasm movies. We're talking about John Dies at the End Yay. and all of those movies. You know, he's a, he's a living master to me. And then we started gushing about Beastmaster. And the look on his face when I even said the word Beastmaster, it was like someone shoved a lemon in his mouth. It was just like, ooh. Yeah. And I, but the thing is, again, as thoughtful I what I thought I was in terms of the amount of trivia and the backstory behind that movie I guess I had no clue because I was like I could tell there was a he made a look like uh treading treading testy waters here I'm like why what 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 happened and he goes they took the cut away from me and in that very moment everything changed my perspective completely changed because and he said right there he goes you know, the, the movie that I wanted to make is not the movie that, that ended up being released at all. It was, it was very heartbreaking, but throughout the years, I've had many people come up to me and say how much they love Beastmaster and how much Beastmaster touched them and how much the, you know, the ferrets meant, meant so much to him. Maybe not Rip Torn, but everybody, everything else about Beastmaster was effective for like our age range, you know, whether it was the kids yeah. or whatever. It, it meant a lot to them. And that's where I kind of said, I, I can't be judgmental on anybody who watches something completely objective 
and appreciates it or not. So, you know, it was thanks to an 80s movie. It really helped me kind of get over, uh, you know, a, a common, you know, a common trait for many filmmakers, which is, you know, we all want to be Willy Beloman. We want to make everybody like our films and stuff. But there's only a, a certain point that you get to that you can manipulate after right. after it comes out. All bets are off. I think that's one of the things that box office mentality is unfortunately bred into people is thinking of a film's life as the moment where it comes out. And a film's life is actually everything after that. When it comes out is just where it makes money or doesn't make money or has its big moment, its big cultural moment. But the tales on films, that is what is really the the story of the movie. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons that we were doing the podcast the list that you sent over when I asked you to do this bonus with me was um, I asked you for movies that you love from the 80s that you don't hear everybody talk about all the time. And I think that is exactly why we want to do the show and make sure we do all 10 years and cover everything is because there are all of these films that we love or that we've carried with us or that we've hold on held on to that have not been beloved cultural artifacts. And sometimes... Over time, that takes hold, and you get Blade Runner, or you get The Thing, and sometimes it just doesn't, and you get the first movie you brought up, which is Brainstorm. And I love Brainstorm, too, so I am so glad you brought it up. I think it is a gorgeous movie, and I think it's a smart science fiction film. I love that movie, and and what's funny is that I love that movie. I loved it since I was a kid because it was one of those five to six movies that played on HBO ad nauseum every week. It was on at least four or five times. It was a PG movie, even though there are things in it that no kid when they're six or seven should be watching, yet I absorbed all of it. And what's funny is that looking back at it, I had a completely different perception of the movie when it played on TV, because I never got to see it in the theater. I remember when it came out in theaters. I didn't get to see it in the theater. So... I didn't. I got the four by three perspective, so I only saw roughly a little, maybe a little more than half of what Doug Trumbull was trying to go for from the beginning until it came out on Laserdisc. Once it came out on Laserdisc, holy shit! Like I had no clue about the different aspect ratio changes. I didn't know that it was shot so wide. Like there's only so much information that you that I got even back then. But yeah. this movie is so ahead of its time, even today. Like I still like it, it. It definitely you can't not look at movies like Strange Days and not see Brain Scan in it, or the whole virtual reality or augmented reality kind of concept. Not born from from Brainstorm. Like it. It's one of those movies that I think even today can be watched and viewed. And the only thing that really dates it are the ages of the actors. Because when you see Christopher Walken now, he's gorgeous in it. You know, Louise Fletcher is is not quite the you know the elder you know stateswoman that she is. Obviously, Natalie Wood is still alive. Um, there's just there's things about it that feels so progressive, and you can tell that Doug was really swinging for the fences in his. This is his second feature, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, and and unfortunately, I, his it, last one. The the idea that you fell in love with it on HBO and video is amazing to me because it is a film that's very largely dependent on the visual experience, and and he is, you know, it's Douglas Trumbull. For for those listening who aren't as familiar with him, Trumbull is a legendary effects artist and basically the father of what we consider modern optical and model model shoots. He's unreal. He is uh, such a brilliant. Um, visual artist in the first place. And the movies that he worked on, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, Close Encounters, 2001, Blade Runner, 
I mean, my God, you're talking about a guy who's just, he changed the way films looked and the way people approached the making of them. And so as a director, of course, he wanted to do something that was largely visually driven and that that pushed visual art forward in some way. And, you know, talked about ShowScan, which was a giant IMAX-like process that this was supposed to be the showcase for. That ended up, unfortunately, I think that was a uh, that was his chaotic windmill. Like that's the thing that he's been chasing his whole career that derailed him to some degree is worrying about camera and projection more than just being a storyteller. But I, the things I love about Bla- uh, about Brainstorm largely aren't the effects or aren't the visuals. It's the emotional side of it. Um, there is a beautiful moment in this movie. And it is, out of Chris Walken's long career, out of all the dramas and the Oscar-nominated stuff and everything else he's ever done, it might be my favorite single line reading of his. Really? Is it that you go to hell? No, you go to hell. Go to hell. Go to hell. No, it's when, it's when he goes to give her the tape and she says, what is this? And he looks at her and all he says is, it's me. Oh, my God. And it just gave, is- you just saying that just gave me chills right now. It's such a beautiful line and such a and it's a giant line because it's not it's a tape of my thoughts or my it's me. It is all of me. I'm giving you access to everything I and that's what relationships, I think a large part, that's what we're aiming for is somebody you can give your whole self to and open your whole self up to and they'll see it and experience it and not judge you and still be there. And one of the things that like I really responded to with that, I didn't really notice until later when I started, you know, enjoying some of the other crew members' filmographies, like Bruce Joel Rubin, the guy who, who yeah. wrote the original story, who's originally supposed to direct the film, you know, he essentially remade it in a much more natural sense with uh, My Life, that Michael Keaton film, which is, you know, is the same thing, just not using the virtual reality idea, you know, and then Jacob's Ladder as well, and Ghost, like, here's someone who has clearly been thinking about his mortality and how you can almost harness it in a way and how you can find like what is that moment at the end of your life when your life flashes before your eyes well how can we use science fiction tropes or how can we use character-based tropes to collect that and and really study that and you know I when again when I was a kid I I I knew that I was at least as far enough removed from the concept of death for a little while longer. It was until I saw Maximum Overdrive and the little kid got killed in that, that I was like, no kids get killed, so this is fine. I got, I got plenty of time before I start seeing those angels. One thing to also mention with, um, with Doug is he was, to me, in terms of lens flares, how J.J. Abrams is to a whole other generation with his lens flares because yep. for the longest time, you know, and, and everyone, you know, from Star Trek on was like, oh, J.J. Abrams, you know, uh, cornered the market in the anamorphic blue flare. I'm like, I'm sorry, have you seen Close Encounters? Have you ever seen? <laughs> There's plenty of lens flares all over the place in, in movies from this, you know, 50s and 60s on up. Even in Lawrence of Arabia, there's a little kick here and there. But you know, back then it was a bit of a, a flaw, but, you know, then it's embraced. But Doug started, you know, or at least kind of revolutionized the idea of having these flares be, you know, uh, diegetic in a way where it's like they're being used to partially add character. And those circular flares to me for the longest time were just so synonymous with the late 70s and early 80s. And that was all Doug. I mean, he does it ad nauseum at the end of this film where it's almost like an orgy of circular flares. But it, it all lends itself to that visual style that he was really trying to adhere to 
to differentiate between the real world and, you know, and the virtual reality world, which is like what you were saying with, um, with the 60 frames per second idea that he was going for at first that MGM ultimately scrapped. Yeah. And the, I, I find the idea that this, I mean, the movie tackles a lot of different, um, smaller ideas about how we're going to end up using virtual reality and, and things like that. And it's not a virtual reality movie. It's a device that actually records real experience. And then you play it back and you have that experience as a full sensory perception. So it's, it's not really virtual reality, but that's what they're, that's, this feels like a cautionary tale for that. And I love the guy, the researcher who creates the loop of the girl that he's having sex with. And when they find him, he's a vegetable. Oh my God. 100% what we're having conversations about now is you see these terrifying reports of the oncoming sex robot revolution. And man, it's going to get really weird out there really quickly. And this movie t- kind of tackles not, not only that, but then the notion of somebody who dies while wearing the recorder and then playing back that experience. That is such a big idea and such a big, beautiful concept that like the end of 2001, he had to really try to create a whole visual language for what that, was, that, what that payoff would feel like. Um, and it's a bold idea, like the idea of the memory bubbles and the idea of all the stuff he had to shoot to be able to even put that sequence together. It's exhausting. There's a lot of things that, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that there was a lot of filmmakers that were influenced by this. Like I remember watching Inside Out going, someone watched Brainstorm because there's a lot yes. of those, the, 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 you know, the memory bubbles and the life bubbles and just the, the concept of heaven and hell the way it is. I mean, if I was older, like maybe 10 years older, man, this movie would have been fantastic going in with a joint because it like just visually speaking, it's playing on levels visually that are just absolutely stunning. Just the one shot where we're, it, it's one of the, it's one of my favorite moments of editing because, you know, there's a moment where uh, they're doing kind of, I think it's like a demo and they're showing all these investors different scenarios that they can be in when they put the the headset on and it shows you they're going into uh you know a, a dinner that has all these um belly dancers there's one in particular where you're following a truck and the way that they do it that I think is just genius especially when you find out how they did it later is they show a shot that seems like a point of view shot almost something right out of road warrior to- like maybe 2 degrees removed from a from one of those low angle street shots from road warrior then it shows the Pick, like the Mack truck barreling towards us. And then as we're going around a curve, it then shows that same ish, that same kind of point of view, but then it goes off the cliff and flies off into the sky. I had never seen anything like that. And then finding out later, they just had yeah. a, a helicopter with a, with a camera in front of it. And that use of editing and that expectation set shot setups, just it, it made me from an early age go, how did they do this? And th- that, that kind of complexity on a visual level is grand, but you're right. Like there's so many thematic and character moments in this movie that almost feel too good for this movie. Like the, the you know, the, the, the whole concept of death and the whole concept of collecting one's life and the whole concept of, you're right. You know, they're thinking about these progressive ideas so much further than when we were like, we're already at this point, like 80, 81, we're just starting to think about what a different reality and a virtual reality would be. And 
Yeah. They're already coming up with the consequences about like what happens when someone dies with this thing on, which some virtual reality, you know, movies even today don't even tackle. You know, it just it yeah. felt like it was very much like Videodrome. When I look back at it, it felt like the ideas behind it were far more complex than an, a, than a general audience would, I guess, adhere to on a commercial level. And I mean, it makes sense that it didn't do well, but has really kind of sustained itself throughout. I mean, it's it seems like it's one of those movies that plays almost every year uh, at the American Cinematheque and this when they do the 70 millimeter retrospective yep. that I always miss yep. every year without fail. Um, I've, I've never seen it on the big screen, but I've seen it, you know, on Laserdisc and Blu-ray. And if you do get a chance, please see it like that. Because when it's like far before Nolan was doing the 35 to IMAX sort of thing, which you could get a little exactly. hint of on the, 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 the Dark Knight Blu-ray, this was far bigger and, 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 and so much earlier than they were doing that variant expectation with the aspect ratio and it just helps it really makes you in makes you feel like you're enveloped in another world whereas now a lot of times it's like well let's just change the color a little bit or the you know the saturation might be different but they like trumbull went full out with this and unfortunately it not everybody enjoyed it if we ever do a uh, 80s all over film festival here in la joe i will make sure to invite you to the brainstorm night because yes the whole point of doing one would be to see stuff in theaters that really demands theaters and that that's as great an example as i can come up with um the second film that you sent over um is one that i think it's starting to to get its due i i feel like there is um a groundswell of support for the film building and uh, little wonder, it's it's a really charming, uh, very special comedy called Three O'clock High. Yes. Oh um, man. Oh, like, I'm so I'm so glad that like when you sent over the idea, that was the first movie that I thought of, mainly because it was one that, and this is before I knew any of the context of the movie. I didn't know who uh, you know Phil Juno was, other than just the guy on the credit. But this was again one of those films that played all the time on HBO. I wasn't reading box office reports at the time. I mean, this was like right in the nascent days of box office reports being reported on Monday mornings. So I had no clue that it was, you know, technically a bomb that no one saw it. But when you watch it, you can't help but feel that there is an unbridled passion behind the camera. One that I remember, funny enough, I remember seeing After Hours, uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours on HBO before this came out. And when, the, when I remember watching this movie, I went, this feels like After Hours. It, it, it has that sort of same matic like quality that, that After Hours did from the staccato editing to the, you know, the over hyper kind of, uh, over caffeinated camera moving every which way but loose. And then if you get the, um, the Shout Factory just put a new Blu-ray out, which I could not recommend higher. It's got new, new commentary. It's got new interviews. Like for, for someone who loved that movie the way I did, it was like the answer to all my prayers because man, like the story is behind that one. But the first thing right out of the gate that Phil talks about is I am ripping off After Hours. So I'm sitting there going like, wait a second. So you're telling me that the, the, the 10, 11 year old me back then totally called it. Yes. Oh my God. I, I felt like, like totally validated by that. But three o'clock high is, it's not your average ordinary high school movie. That was the thing that I, I think many people who first 
gleaned on it, whether it was obviously the two people who saw it in the theaters, but many like myself saw it on home video and on HBO. It's like we were in a deluge of 80s teen comedies. It was They were just everywhere. And there, there's another one that I, I threw out on my list that is, as you know, to some probably as kind of standard as it comes, right down to having the, the, the Billy Zapka role in the movie. But this one just feels like someone is commenting on the 80s movie and doing it in a way that feels decidedly different, a lot darker than one would expect, but it, this, this, this cat has a voice, you know, and that's what got me so excited about watching anything else that Phil had done since, which unfortunately there, there wasn't as many movies that came out from him after this. Um, I mean, he did, he's done a lot, but not, not in, not in the way that this was. Because this was out in the same time as like a... Yeah, arrived on a wave of hype, man. When Juano made this, there was a real push behind him. Like, he had been discovered... By Steven I, Spielberg. I, I, yeah, Spielberg was the guy that was pushing him. Was like, I believe in this guy. Spielberg, Spielberg ended up seeing one of his short films, I think at, at the fest, like one of the student film festivals at UCLA, or no, USC, and was just so impressed by it that he called, the, he called him up and said, I want to work with you, and then ended up doing an amazing stories episode and then had this script that Richard Matheson actually, you know, first wrote that was, you know, decidedly different than the end product and offered it to Phil and Phil declined it. He, he just, he said, no, that's not for me. And then realized that night, like, what am I a fucking moron? Like I just declined a movie from Steven Spielberg and ran back to universal the next morning and stopped Spielberg at like, while he was walking in his office said, I'll do your movie. I'll do your movie. And, you know, and I'm sorry if I'm giving away some of the Bon Mots from the, the Blu-ray, but I think they're fascinating. Spielberg was in um, Japan or in like in England slash Japan doing uh, Empire of the Sun. So Spielberg had basically told everybody, you know, the, the kids got carte blanche. And if you have a problem, you can call me. But the thing is, because Aaron Spelling controlled the rights to the script, for some reason, Aaron Spelling didn't want Spielberg's name on the script or like on, on the production. So this is an Amblin production, but not by name only. There's like he wasn't contractually allowed to put the Amblin stamp on it for some reason or another. And they don't even really go into it's just politics. Bullshit. It's Chinatown, Jake. It's just total politics. But it I mean, you can't not help but feel the Spielberg in this, you know, like there's certain moments in the movie that are just straight up, like right out of a Spielberg film. And you can just feel that his his influence all over, but essentially this guy got the Spielberg, you know, uh, golden ticket in a way and was given carte blanche. And this, this is the yeah. movie that resulted from it. And it's it's a film that really holds up. I love Casey Jamasco in it. I think it's clever in the way it's built. And yeah, that manic shooting style that he borrows from After Hours, the I, it's, you know, him saying that he's ripping it off. It's the notion of taking this approach that when Scorsese does it for midnight, for post-midnight New York, there's a specific energy he's capturing, which is this weird idea that as it gets later and later, weirder and weirder shit starts happening, and you feel like you're breaking down to some degree um, as the world breaks down around you. And to apply that to high school, that's a really clever idea. Like, just that, him recognizing that this material would benefit from that approach is a very, very smart choice as a filmmaker. And I, I do think Juano attacks it. Like, you, you watch him shoot... You watch the way this film is shot, there is a hunger in everything he's doing. He is really ready to be making movies. 
And I think that there's there's two different kinds of filmmakers. There's filmmakers who, on their first film, it's still like them them kind of trying out all the tools and seeing how everything works. And you, yeah. And then there's guys who arrive and they've made 15 movies in their head, but this is the first one now. They're going to hit the ground running and they are going to eat it alive while they do it. Yeah, there's a confidence. There's a confidence in in the filmmaking right out right out of the gate, you know. And knowing, you know, again, just from the the Blu-ray, like that whole opening scene where he's getting ready for school, that was a reshoot. That wasn't in the original uh, construct of the film. The original construct of the film, the original opening, was that long, steady cam oneer that's pulling out from the clock, and then you know, hearing all the different variant uh, voices kind of talking about the the infamous Buddy Ravel and how he's coming to school. But then they test screened it and went, oh, you know what? We need something else. So then he went back and you can tell that there is an, e- an even more passionate hunger in that opening scene. It's almost like, oh yeah, well watch fucking this. And you get this right. insane opening right. scene. Gonna, change that thing that I loved already. Then I better come up with something that I love more. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, that one, I'm so glad. And I, like I said, I feel like it is picking up steam. I do feel like I see more people talking about it. I think Shout Factory helps. As Shout Factory is putting stuff out, there's people that are learning to kind of trust their curating taste and know that they're going to, when they put something out, it's going to be worthwhile. It's going to be interesting. That they're not chasing the rights, just carte blanche. They want specific titles. And Shout, you know, Shout Selects, like the fact that they've just done um, you know, to live and die in LA and Buckaroo Banzai and this movie, it's like, they're, they're now tapping into all the movies that like, I feel our generation had an appreciation for. And it was just that the studios themselves, just looking at numbers, you know, that we're all, we, we, not every studio has a division like Warner selects, you know, where they can get away with putting these movies out where it's not going to be a high risk investment and shout comes along and, and gives the kind of loving, uh, touch to a movie like this that no one would expect. I mean, I know my mom is thrilled because she had the biggest crush on Richard Tyson, who plays Buddy Ravel. That uh-huh. I, I like. I think every mom probably did at one point. But you know, the, the other thing with with Three O'clock High to me was you're right. Like you look at other '80s movies, and I was growing up in the in the time where I wasn't in high school yet. But obviously, I had seen enough high school movies to have a very particular idea of the kind of teenage wasteland that it was going that that was coming my way and this movie did not help matters whatsoever you know i i I think if anything this movie in a certain way is more of like a film noir and a thriller you know set in a high school than one would expect because a lot of the things that are happening i mean it's it is high noon you know it's high noon in high school it like like it makes no bones about it it is in the title and that kind of thriller archetype just wasn't really around in those films or, you know, usually the, the plots are very standard and it's usually dealing with relationships. Like this movie has a goal and, you know, and that goal is to get our character to a, to a place emotionally to get him to fight at the end of the film when he's called out by Buddy Ravel. And, and, and he goes through that journey and we go, go through it with him, but it's not in a way that I think anyone expected. And again, like Brainstorm and probably like many of the movies we're going to talk about, it's like at first, I think people just didn't quite cotton to it. And slowly but surely, it found its audience. It's a bit of an anxiety attack, which is one of the reasons that I I can see why audiences may have had some issues. I think audiences, not every audience likes feeling like they're having a panic attack in a movie. 
and the movie's very good at it, as is our next film, which I consider truly one of the great films of the decade. And man, I was alone that summer. I didn't know anybody else who got it, who loved it the way I did. And uh, I was a theater manager when this came out, so I saw the film a lot, and in particular would see the ending of the film a lot. Um, so I would watch those closing credits with Sister Carol as she she sings the uh, Wild Thing version. And, of course, that means that the film I'm talking about is Jonathan Demme's beautiful, crazy Something Wild. It's a terrific film, and it features not one, not two, but three of the very best performances of the 80s. Um, I'm not a big Melanie Griffith person overall. I think she's it's largely filmmaker dependent, and this is a case where whatever Demi saw in her was perfect because she. I can't imagine anybody else playing this part this way. It's really funny because I had seen this movie again. Another this is another HBO refugee where I, obviously I did not see this movie in the theaters, but it ended up being one of those staples on HBO that would play a lot, and I watched it incessantly just because of the charm behind Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griff- Griffith. For an 11-year-old kid, there was just something so unique about the tone of the movie, and and especially in the beginning of the film. And then when you get to the final 20, 25 minutes of the film, and it turn, it's it's kind of like it has an uh, Takashi Miike audition-like tonal change, where it feels like you you know for the longest time you've been watching. Oh, it's one movie until Ray Liotta shows up, and then it's a different movie. Then it turns into Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, yeah. and I was floored by that. Like, I, if, if anything, I remember watching it just to have the feeling of, oh my God. And then I would kind of foist that on friends and foist that on families where it's like, yeah, watch this movie and then watch how they just go, whoa, what the hell just happened? Because it, I, and I, it's a movie that I don't, do not think would, would at least pass through any kind of sort of studio system today, maybe not even on the indie level either, just because of that tonal shift. But you're right, the, the relationships in the beginning of this film where it's boy meets girl in the most random sort of way and then becomes a road trip movie, which ultimately then becomes a star-crossed lovers meets revenge film, I was just so blown away by that that when the Criterion disc came out and I had gotten it last year, I got it just because of nostalgia. I was just like, I love that movie, let me watch it again, and did not realize how uh, inspiring that movie was to my own career. I'm so glad to hear that it played differently for you because it's, I, it is one movie, I, I would imagine, when you see it at the age that you saw it and imprinted on. But, man, as an adult, that movie's about 50 different things. And all great things. Like, the thing is, it, yeah. if it was just the boy meets girl, oddball, offbeat kind of comedy that you would expect from IRS films in the 80s and stuff, like totally fine and if it ended up being a whole movie about ray liotta stalking these two and you know there is a thought where you're watching the movie where they could have had scenes early on that showed like who is this dapper mysterious looking greaser dude who keeps just showing up and like slowly but surely getting closer and closer to our to our new lovers they could have done that but he drops into the film in the third act you know and 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 it stirs things up so much that the film has to make a decision. It has to decide whether or not it wants to play off the comedy tone. And, and thus I think it would have dulled the impact of, of Ray Liotta's character coming in. 
and then or it could have said well you know we have to we have to stay in this one tone the entire film and it would have lessened the impact of that ending i i'm just or if if anything knowing that there was going to be this inherent danger coming from the beginning would have given you little hints along the way and it doesn't and i i i love it more every time i see it and i think it's become like in my it's slowly worked its way into my top 10 films of all time because of how much i've i see myself in that movie and how back then i was in that age where you have evil dead 2 coming out and you have reanimator and you have these films that are teetering on the precipice of whether or not you're a horror film or a comedy you don't quite know and here's a movie that's a comedy but then turns into a horror movie and that you just don't see those movies you never saw them back then and you definitely don't see them now and to see how you know demi obviously deftly segued from this to married to the mob and then ultimately to silence of the lambs it's like it was all there it was yeah. all there from the beginning and you know i i also i i admit like i'm not the biggest melanie griffith fan i was more of a fan of hers because of body double and what body double kind of gave me at the young nubile age that i was at where i'm like I'm, oh i like her knowing how old you were joe i'm i can't imagine what body double did to you good lord it that that was another movie that i saw when i was way too young and did not uh, understand uh, half the shit that was going on in that movie but i liked it and this movie did kind of give the same thing i you know, not not to not to bring it back to myself again, but like I look at Mayhem and I see so much of the two lead characters in Mayhem very similar to the two lead characters in Something Wild. There is just that kind of archetype of taking the, I mean, this was obviously before the manic the, the manic pixie girl archetype was around. Right. Oh, but she's she is a proto example of it. Like she is sort of the uber example of what a manic pixie dream girl is patient zero audrey is patient zero for the you know manic pixie girl like paradigm and there was just something so fucking punk rock about that and then you look back at jonathan demi's filmography and how he was in that world he was going to cbgb's and seeing talking heads and he was incorporating you know variant music uh in the film that didn't need to be there but the soundtrack is incredible it's one of the best soundtracks of the eighties, you know, but you know, at the same time, it's, it's incredible mainly because you know, the context of the movie. I don't think people who would li- like listen to it willy nilly without, you know, like back in the day when they would have like the soundtracks come out before the movie and you would get a little taste of what's in store. I, I don't think anyone listening or uh, listening to the soundtrack might've gotten any idea what this movie was about from the soundtrack, yep. but it plays such a character role in the movie throughout so much that when it, when the camera pans away and we go to that, you know, that rendition of wild thing from the waitress, it's, it fits perfectly and makes no sense whatsoever. Yet it works. I real quick, before we move on, uh, I want to also highlight that these three films, um, we're talking about the directors largely because these are movies where there's such a, a strong signature on the final product but, you know, Brainstorm, we talked about Bruce Joel Rubin's role, 3 O'Clock High, Richard Christian Matheson, the second generation of the Matheson uh, legacy, um, was one of the guys who, like, really did the brute force work on 3 O'Clock High. And E. Max Fry, who wrote Something Wild, um, that script was... Uh, and what I love about Demi as a director is Demi really, really relied on... It had to be a great script before he started. 
Um, he was not a guy that believed in, well, we'll fix it while we shoot. He really started from a foundation of whether it's Bo Goldman's script from Melvin and Howard or whether it's that terrific Ted Talley adaptation of Silence of the Lambs. Um, he needed it to be rock solid on the page. And Something Wild is a terrific piece of writing. It is a great screenplay. And there is what I love is that Audrey, the way she gradually gets revealed over the course of the film, and you and she first she plays a couple of different roles, and it's clear that she puts roles on and off, but then later she gets exposed as who she really is in front of Jeff Daniels, and she wasn't ready for that. She wasn't ready for him to see who she really was with all the shitty baggage and the, the ex-husband and the that she tried to compartmentalize. What I love is that that would be enough, but Jeff Daniels has a secret, and the way that secret plays out I think is terrific because, boy, when they drop that hammer and you realize everybody's been lying to you, everyone. Yeah. That is a... It's such a profound choice. It it really, to me, opens the movie up to the larger conversation of how we come into things and how we put faces on when we meet people and how easy it is once you've started to play a role to just keep playing that role rather than to ever snap it back to who you really are. And this couple, over the course of this film, goes from total bullshit when they meet and they have all the wild sparks in the beginning of this thing to, by the end... There's no hiding. They 100% are exposed to each other. And it's terrific that way. And when they end up in, and this was, this was funny because when I watched the movie for the first time, I, you know, I lived in Long Island. And not too many movies were shot in Long Island or, you know, like were characters, if anything. So it was the rare joy to see when they're driving uh, back to uh, Jeff Daniels' home after, you know, the, the big reveal has happened and you start to kind of see how all the bullshit is tripping away and these two people are in a car driving down the Long Island Expressway and they're going to Stony Brook, which was the town next to mine. So I was freaking out going like, oh my God, this happened like right next door to me. And having all of those, that, you know, that first hour of the film where, where essentially... Emacs Fry and Demi are stripping down these characters from their persona in the coffee shop when they first meet or outside the coffee shop all the way to the point where everything is earned. Like it's not just these kind of twisty reveals. It's that it slowly and gradually peels away the onion on both of them so that you truly love them by the time that they, she goes to sleep and he sits down in his living room and just kind of settles in. And you know what? The credits could have rolled there and I could have been happy. And then fucking, and then goddamn Ray Sinclair throws you know, something through the window and it becomes one of the most terrifying final moments in a movie that I've ever seen. It was terrific to stand in the back of a theater and watch that play. Oh my God. People would fall out of their seats when he came through the window. They weren't expecting it and then pick themselves up and then just cringe for the next 10 minutes. I felt bad for the production designer on that film because Ray Liotta is a, he is the Tasmanian devil in that movie. He destroys yeah. practically every, every wall, every cabinet is destroyed. Like there, there are things in it that he is so ferocious in it that you, as a filmmaker, I sit there and go, man, that must've been a hell of a cleanup for the next take. Because, like, he destroys shit, but he is, and this was his first, like, film role, too. So yeah. he is yeah. so on fire that by the end of the movie, 
and, and it gets incredibly violent. Like there is, if, if anyone, I would have loved to have been a, a, a working in a theater with people who might have thought, based on just on the poster and the first thirty minutes alone, that they were going to enjoy a light romantic romp with a little <laughs> offbeat touch. Oh, yes. And then you oh, get yes. to that final twenty minutes of that movie, and it is it is a completely different film. Yet, because we are so invested in those characters. We want to see this through to the end. It's not something where you just kind of turn off or you just go, no, no, I don't accept this on, a, on an aesthetic level. It's life is so pr- like precarious in terms of genre because one day can be a comedy, the next day could be a horror movie. Sometimes they happen in the same day. That, that was kind of the message that I got from the movie is that li- you, can't, you can't box a, a life or you can't box characters into genres. Because you can take the same characters in, uh, you know, a, a cute offbeat comedy and throw them into a taut thriller and still see how they react. And the way that both those characters react in those in those final scenes with Ray Liotta are so human. Every choice, especially Melanie Griffith, there are moments in, in there that I think are the most real that she's ever been in a movie ever, ever. And I don't think that you would have gotten the same thing if the movie was a thriller the whole way through. Because I think we would have been waiting for it. It's taking these these two characters that we end up falling in love with just as much as they're falling in love with themselves, and kind of testing them and seeing how they they and they deal with this very very big problem. And Jeff Daniels too, you know, you you I think you will look at him completely different by the end of that movie, even just from the based on the performance before. Like I don't think anyone was expecting that from Jeff Daniels and the ferocity that he kind of conveys at the end of the movie is iconic. So yeah, I like I'm I'm thrilled that this movie is starting to get like get get out there more. It seems like it was one of those movies that people kind of forgot a little while for a bit. But uh, but it's one that I hold very dear to my heart. We are actually at the limit of our recording time for right now. No, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you back because the rest of your list is awesome, and I actually want to hip pocket it because I would rather take the time to talk about each of these movies for real than rush through a bunch of them. Um, but thank you, man. Thank you for sitting down and doing this. This was really fun. And I'm gonna say this right now: like you guys are in my top three podcasts. Uh, I've, I've loved this show from the, the, the moment that you guys started talking about it, I was like, oh yeah, this show is for me. But the, the amount of insights, are you going to get your car waxed for a minute? The amount of insight that you <laughs> and Scott, you're able to really cover each month with such a breath. And you, and you're right. Also the, the, the thesis of the show that I loved from the beginning was yes, we all know those six movies from the eighties or those 10 movies from the eighties, but Everyone forgets about the 20 to 30 more each month that come out because of the way the marketplace was. And there were so many movies that you will forget about Wolfen and you will forget about used cars or you will go, oh, my God, I totally forgot how much Popeye had so much resonance both in my life and in, on the culture. So please keep up the good work. Like you guys are doing Lord, the, the cinema lords work right now. And, uh, and I, and I, like, I'm a patron myself, so it's great to, the, to read the mailbag and, or read, uh, like, all the people who are discovering movies that, like, cause, you know, I usually, I'm driving in or driving out, um, in my car when I'm listening to this. And the amount of times I've gone, like, yes, every time something gets, uh, like, that I know gets talked about, or, oh, when there's that, like, undiscovered gem, you need that. So thank you for, for putting this on. And, and I believe me, I'm going to keep listening until you get to the final week when you talk about Tango and Cash last. 
<laughs> that's got to be the last one, right? I think it might be because that that was like the last film released in the eighties. Yeah, I think you. I think you have to do it that way because that is that it is a very special feeling to have been there and realized this is it. This is the last film. You should definitely and, uh, try to have uh, somehow have Cargill and Brian call in because they love from junk food cinema. There should be the like uh, justice league kind of team up where you guys can get them in. Cause like, we know that they could talk about tango and cash ad nauseum, <laughs> get, get the whole band together and talk about that last one. And it'll be like the last episode of TRL where they brought everybody back for that final moment. So, uh, so please, please keep doing a great job. And uh, everybody, remember uh, this coming Friday, uh, Mayhem is available, and I highly recommend it. I think you're gonna have a great time with it, Joe. Thanks so much, man. We'll talk to you very soon. And uh, for those of you listening on Patreon, thank you for your continued support. Please spread the word through iTunes, your friends, social media, however you can. You're the reason we're still on. It. <laughs>